You see, friend, as we've looked at this text, I've said to you time and time again that this in many ways is a manual of repentance. It is, of course, history. It gives us the account of one man's experience, but it is history with a very real and polemical purpose. This book is supposed to go to those who cry, we know God, who nevertheless know nothing of true repentance. They say we know what it is to be to walk with the Lord. We know what it is to be God's people. And yet Jonah's people, the people to whom this book is to be sent, are people to whom God says, you are lo ami, not my people. You see, they were unconscious of their own spiritual deadness. They had no real knowledge of their spiritual barrenness. And this book comes to them as a tutor, a manual, if you will, to show them this is the true and the living God. And this is the kind of work that he does in souls that are truly penitent. And friend, as we look at Jonah chapter 2, we find then that this chapter and the fourth as well form for us a vibrant picture of what true repentance is, and especially in the fourth chapter, what it isn't. You have Jonah the prophet here giving us an account of how God is working in his soul, leading him away from that path of desertion and rebellion, and leading him back to the Lord his God. And we said before, friend, that in this text, you have the prophet giving us his experience under inspiration of God's spirit by taking us to those two antithetical polarized experiences. That moment whenever he was under the chastening hand of God, And then that moment whenever he was on the shore, delivered out from under the rod. And, of course, all throughout chapter 2 you find that. We find ourselves at once in the sea and then another time at the shore. And our text this evening is no different. We left, you remember last time we were together, looking at Jonah as he stood on the shore, reflecting on the deliverance of God. But when we come to our text, the seventh verse, we find ourselves back under the rod. We find ourselves being given an experience of a man who's under God's chastening hand. So he says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. And so Jonah takes us back to that moment, whenever he was under the Lord's hand of chastening. And you'll notice here as we look at this text, that we find the prophet saying, first of all, that he had nearly fainted. But that's not all that we find. We find here his affliction, but we find also his response. He remembers the Lord. Then implicitly he prays. And then he tells us here that the prayer that he made came unto the Lord. And specifically he says in parallel, into the Lord's holy temple. And so what you have here is the initial cause. You have Jonah's affliction. He fainted. And then you have his response to that. He remembers the Lord, he prays, and then in parallel terms he says that his prayer was heard by the Lord. Now friend, what we have in this text, we can't miss, is still what we said at the beginning. Jonah is instructing us here by his own example of what real repentance is. If we miss that, friend, we miss the book. This book is not about running away from one's vocation. This book is not about the fish, not about the storm, and really in one sense, not even about Nineveh. 
This is a book that shows us one man as the grace of God is operating upon his soul, leading him even under affliction to come to real repentance. The very kind of thing that Israel lacked. The very kind of thing that Israel thought that she knew but was entirely ignorant of. The very thing that you and I this evening need to take up if our lives are also to be marked by repentance. This is not then just historical experience. What you have in the seventh verse of Jonah 2 is still instruction for us about what it is to be truly penitent. And if you look at the seventh verse, you'll find here that there's a very basic theme. Taking the man's experience with the words that you have here, you see here that the penitent here, here Jonah remembers God under great spiritual affliction. And that is our theme. The penitent remember God under great spiritual affliction. And I want us to see that briefly this evening under three headings. I want us to consider the prophet's affliction, his activity, and finally the assurance that he has. And so first of all, the prophet's affliction. You see here in the seventh verse, the man says, when my soul fainted within me. He's talking here about an inward experience. He's talking about something that is internal, truly. And what is that thing that he faced? Well, that thing here he describes as a kind of fainting. In the scriptures, this is variously translated, this Hebrew word, sometimes failed, sometimes overwhelmed, sometimes fainted, sometimes sometimes perplexed. So you have in Lamentations 2 the words, they swooned, that's our Hebrew word in our text, they swooned as the wounded in the streets. In other words, the prophet there describes one who, whose blood has drained from their bodies to the extent they have no more strength. Their whole body, its whole frame has simply devolved. Then he says, and throughout the Psalter, you have these words, my spirit was overwhelmed. The word overwhelmed is the same word of our text. The sense there being that everything within the man's faculties had been stretched to a point that they could be stretched no further. He has encountered something that is truly beyond him. My friend, the sense of our text and the sense of all of those passages, and we could have enumerated far more, is just this. The man is describing himself as one who has almost lost his bearings, his faculties, to, to the point where he almost becomes like one who is dead. Just think about the experience of fainting for a moment. Here you see the man, everything around him suddenly becomes darker. And darker. He feels himself not right. He feels as though he's losing more and more of himself. He doesn't know what awaits him. What Jonah says here is that was the experience of his soul. He was a man fainting, a man overwhelmed, a man perplexed. And friend, what we learn from this is very simple it's that spiritual affliction of this kind and caliber is often perplexing. Spiritual affliction is often perplexing. I want you to note, friend, how the scriptures give this to us. Perhaps for us who live in our day and age, this is something that's surprising. It shouldn't be. The scriptures, from really the beginning to the end, hold out to us this simple truth that the inward difficulties of the believer are things that are very difficult to understand. But, friend, as you look throughout the scriptures, even if we don't seem to understand that, the scriptures write large about this experience. I want you to know just how the scriptures describe this. In Psalm 42, a psalm that we took up just months ago now, note how the psalmist describes himself. 
He says, my tears have been my meat day and night. He's saying, I'm feeding on my affliction. Whenever I wake, whenever I sleep, these things are always around me. I can't go away from them. To the extent that one almost thinks that he's nourished by these things. They're so perennial, so constant. My days are consumed like smoke, we just sang. And my bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I read to you from Psalm 102. Friend, the striking thing about that psalm is, the psalmist is not describing any kind of physical malady. He's describing himself as one under the hand of God. He's describing himself as one who's experiencing extreme spiritual difficulty. And note how he describes himself. He is so afflicted. His inward disposition is so taxed that he says that he has forgotten to eat his daily bread. The psalmist in Psalm 88 goes on. My soul is full of troubles and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. In other words, the psalmist says his spiritual difficulties are so perennial and so present that he feels as though he's made an island by them. These are things that are always in his view. Things that he cannot escape from. Things that are higher. Things that are stronger than himself. My friend, I just described to you what the scriptures say about a man who walks with the Lord. I've described for you a man who is regenerate, a man who knows God, and yet a man who knows that spiritual difficulty at times can be so overwhelming and perplexing. And that leads us to the question, why would a man go through that if he really knows the Lord? And by the way, Jonah here does know the Lord. So why would Jonah and the psalmists that we've just read, why would they be those who would have such experiences? Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Now, says Christ, is my soul troubled. A friend, of course, we're thinking there in John 12 about the great soul anguish that would come with the fullness of Christ's accomplished work in redemption. Of course, we're thinking about what would await him in Gethsemane and at Calvary. But we can't escape the fact that what Christ experienced in his humiliation in this life was spiritual trouble. Not because of any sin, but because he would be a man marked by sorrow, internal as well as external. Note how the prophet describes him. He is one, says Isaiah, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. Sorrows encompassing him at every turn. And acquainted, he says here, with grief. Intimately acquainted. Powerfully acquainted with these kinds of difficulties and troubles. You see, friend, the reason why the soul will encounter difficulties and trouble is because that is part of the cross that Christ has called his people to take up. Too often, 
Friend, too often the evangelical talks about taking up a cross, and they think that it is simply to be mistreated at work. Too often they take up a cross thinking that that really just involves physical sickness, other kinds of hard providences, and they forget that part of Christ's likeness is forged, even through perplexing spiritual affliction. That's part and parcel of the Christian experience. And though our affliction is not meritorious, and it's certainly not to the same degree that Christ experienced these things, it is nevertheless the path of Christ's likeness. And so why does a Jonah, why does a psalmist experience something like this, where the soul can be described as fainting, overwhelmed, and so forth? Well, friend, in many ways, the reason why he finds these things is not just because of sin. Really, the reason why the believer knows these things so intimately is because of his salvation. Christ is using these things to conform him to his likeness, to his image. You see, friend, as I said before, this is a manual on repentance. And what you have in the seventh verse of Jonah 2 is a man who is keenly aware, keenly aware of his spiritual difficulties. And friend, you think of those who were to read this book initially. These were men who did not know These were men who were entirely unaware of spiritual barrenness. They were insensitive to these kinds of afflictions. I mean, note what Haggai says. He says, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Note what he says here. He's saying, you are afflicted. You are highly afflicted people. And yet you are insensible. You don't realize that you're afflicted. You are so steeped in your rebellion and in your callousness that you don't even recognize that your soul is under great barrenness and difficulty. I mean, it's the very thing, isn't it, that we read in Revelation 3. Note what he says. There the Lord speaks to the church at Laodicea and he says, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's what they say. They say they're all well. There's no spiritual problems, no real affliction. But then here's what Christ says. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Friend, when we say that Jonah here represents, is really an exemplar for repentance, we need to recognize that his spiritual sensitivity here is also a mark of his penitence. Those who are spiritually dead, those who are without real spiritual life, friend, they're insensible that their souls are under great difficulty. And if they're not entirely insensible, friend, they turn themselves so that they're distracted. They don't focus on these things. Such was the case of Laodicea. Such was the case in Haggai's day. Now you see, friend, here you have Jonah who is keenly, spiritually aware of what is going on in his soul. But that brings us to the second point, doesn't it? And that is the question, what does the prophet do? What does he do in response to this? And he says to us very plainly in the seventh verse, his response was just that he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord. But friend, as you read through this text, that's a rather striking thing to say. I mean, does it strike you that he says here, I remembered the Lord whenever he was afflicted? 
It should be striking because everything that he said up to this point shows us that Jonah never really forgot the Lord. I mean, just look up with me just a few lines. Note what he says here in verses 3 and 4. He says here, Thy waves, thy billows, passed over me. I am cast out of thy sight. When the waves were roaring and frothing, when the deep threatened to swallow up his life, Jonah was thinking about the Lord. They were the Lord's waves. They were the Lord's billows. And and even go into chapter 1. Look at the ninth verse. I am in Hebrew and I fear the Lord God, the God of heaven. Jonah remembered the Lord on the ship. But in what sense did Jonah remember the Lord in those moments? Well, friend, you know how he remembered the Lord. Look at the fifth verse of chapter 1. The mariners were afraid. They cried every man to his God. They cast forth their wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. As we said before when we made our comments on that text, you remember the words fast asleep there are the words translated elsewhere to faint. It describes Daniel as he stands before the Lord or or the angel representing the Lord falling down as dead. That's how Jonah remembered the Lord in those moments. His memory of God was, was, friend, it was not comforting. It was something that coaxed from him the greatest and and deepest fears. He relates very much to the psalmist in Psalm 77. You remember how the psalmist describes himself. I remembered God, he says, and was troubled. Psalm 77, the third verse. But then when we look at the seventh verse, we need to recognize here that Jonah is not saying that he's remembering the Lord in a general sense. This kind of memory of God that he has is something very different from those kinds of thoughts that he had of God before. What is he thinking of here? Well, friend, the kinds of things that he remembers about the Lord. Oh, he remembers here the Lord's goodness. He remembers here the Lord's grace. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. The God he remembers is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the kind of God that he remembers here. Yes, he was a man under the chastening hand of God. But when he thinks about God in this moment, friend, it's the very thing that pulls him away from fainting. These are the very foundations that he lays upon, holds to, that keep him from falling utterly. He thinks of the goodness of God. But friend, it's even more than that, isn't it? This idea of remembering God is given to us in Psalm 22, Psalm 20, rather. Some trust in chariots, says the psalmist. But note what he says, and summon horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Note what the psalmist says there. There is a real connection between trusting and remembering. Those who trust in chariots and in horses are very different than those who remember, that is, who trust in the Lord. And so Jonah is not just thinking abstractly about the goodness of God. Not abstractly about the God who does forgive sinners, but he is entrusting himself to this God. And how do we know that? Friend, we know that because of what follows in the seventh verse. The man falls to prayer. He falls to prayer. And friend, prayer we have to recognize here is a token 
and is also the daughter of faith. It is real prayer that Jonah is offering. And so it is real faith that is its mother. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Friend, it is not true prayer unless it is made in faith. And here the, and here the apostle in Hebrews 11 describes what faith is. They must believe God and also believe that he who comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, friend, here what you have in the seventh verse is an expression of faith in the goodness and also in the grace of God. What this teaches us, friend, here is that faith in the godly, faith in the penitent is exercised even whenever it's brought to extremity. Even when the soul feels overwhelmed. Even these overwhelming, even these great and high afflictions cannot extinguish the flickering faith wrought by the Spirit of God. The penitent exercise faith in spiritual adversity. The exercise faith in spiritual adversity. Take just for example Psalm 77. You remember what the psalmist says, I remembered God and was troubled. That's how the psalmist begins. But then he ends with these words, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. He says these words. He says he'll remember God differently after he says that his doubting of God was his infirmity. You see what the psalmist is saying. He checks himself. Or rather the spirit of God through faith prevents him from going any further. Even under his spiritual difficulty, he he takes himself back to the testimony of God. And he says, I must cling to these things even though the adversity is strong. Even overwhelming. I mean, the psalmist in Psalm 102 is no different. He says, I'm withered like the grass, but thou, he says, O Lord, shalt endure forever. And thy remembrance unto all generations. What is the psalmist doing there? He recognizes his difficulty, but then he throws himself upon the testimony of God. What's striking about Psalm 102 is the psalmist there is speaking of Christ, according to the writers of the Hebrew, Hebrews. rather. Hebrews chapter 1, it's Psalm 102 that the writer has in mind. And then, of course, Psalm 18. To the psalmist's difficulty, he says this. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. Friend, how is the word of God tried? Well, it's tried in many ways, but one of those ways, of course, is through the people under affliction, casting themselves upon it. The penitent exercising faith in spiritual affliction. That too is a trial of God's word. And what does he say? He says here, he is, even through all of that, a buckler, a real buckler, a sound buckler to all those who trust in him. In these ways, friend Jonah is telling us something very simple. He's telling us that even under spiritual affliction, the promises of God, those testimonies of God still function as compass and map. I mean, think about the mountaineer for a moment, caught in a blizzard. In a place he's never been before. He can't trust his senses. His visibility has diminished. He can't trust his sense of direction. So what does he have to entrust himself in? He must entrust himself to his compass 
into his map. Friend, those who are under spiritual difficulty cling to their Bible no less, no less earnestly than that mountaineer. Spiritual affliction is perplexing. It leaves them without any real hope that their senses can discern for them the way forward. But the Word of God, the Word of God and the promises therein really form for the believer his map and his bedrock. Now friend, again, this is a manual for us that shows the contrast between the godly and the false. Note how the ungodly respond to their affliction. Isaiah 58. They cry, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Note what he's saying there. We are are clinging to our goodness. We are clinging to our works of religion. We're clinging to our fasting and to our senses of humiliation under affliction. That's what they're saying. We're afflicted and we're entrusting ourselves to our spiritual experiences and duties. And then look at Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Friend, this is the real mark, isn't it? Between those who possess real faith and those who don't. You see, those who are afflicted and don't possess faith will entrust themselves to their righteousness. They'll use and rely upon their spiritual senses. But those who are in Christ entrust themselves only to the promises of God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in Christ, Job. But thirdly and finally as we close, friend, we have to see here that this man is not a man who is blindly trusting and hoping against hope that the Lord would hear. He's a man who is assured that the Lord has heard. He says here, to thee, his prayer came, to thine holy temple. It's important for us, friend, to note here that there is no pagan notion of of God's placement here. Jonah is not saying that God dwells in a place of brick and mortar. And friend, even at the dedication of the temple, you see that. Will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Asks Solomon at the dedication of the building. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. No, friend, when Jonah invokes here the idea of the temple, he's not saying that God is not infinite. But it does beg the question, what does he really mean then? Why the invocation of the temple? Well, you see, even at the dedication of the temple, you have these words. Solomon prays, Hearken therefore unto the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. Hear thou from my dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. Note what he says, when, when your people look to the temple and pray, hear them and pardon. That's what Solomon prays as the temple is opened. And we need to ask the question, why? Why is the temple a place where the Lord, as he sees folks looking to them, why would he then be disposed to pardon? Or why should we think that he would be disposed to pardon? Well, friend, fast forward through the centuries. Leave Solomon and come to a greater than Solomon. And you'll find these words. In this place is one greater than the temple, he cried. 
Matthew 12, verse 2. But in the original, it's even more clear. When Christ speaks those words, he really is saying, a greater temple is here. You see, the temple typified for us Emmanuel. And when Christ comes, he cries, I am that temple. The fullness of all that it represented. I am he, embodied in flesh. Everything that was there manifested. The sacrifices that showed atonement. The labor that showed cleansing. And even the door that demonstrated a way of access has been made to the holy place. Christ there cries, I am greater. I am the greater temple. And so friend, when Jonah says that the Lord heard him even in the holy temple. As he's a man who is possessed of faith. He is looking forward through the types and the shadows and saying that he entrusts himself to a faithful mediator. And therefore he is sure that the Lord heard him. He entrusts himself to the one who is the antitype, the fulfillment of everything the temple stood for, namely reconciliation with the holy God. My friend, that means then that the penitent see divine favor secured in Christ. Assured they are as they look to these things in Christ. The apostle puts it this way, if our heart condemneth God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then have we confidence with God. Even under spiritual difficulty, perplexing as it might be, what does the apostle say? If we are reposing in Christ, friend, we may even have confidence with God, he says. Because peace is secured. The Lord hears his people favorably. And then, of course, the Christian's charter. Romans 8. Who is he that condemneth? A fair question. But friend, never, never read over lightly how the apostle answers. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. That is the reason, he says, why none can condemn. Peace has been secured through Christ. Through Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I am persuaded, he writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And note this again, friend. Note how the apostle concludes. Which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The believer's peace with God. Rests not in experience and not in providence. It rests not in the doubting fears of the believer. It rests in Christ and is only secured in there. My friend, the reality is then this man, Jonah, stands as one who entrusts himself fully to Christ. And he believes that this Christ is sufficient. To secure him before God. You see friend that's precisely why generals are made presidents. 
Victorious generals on the battlefield are often, after they've proven themselves to be competent on the battlefield, are elected by the people to be supreme leaders in the civil sphere. Because they've demonstrated that they are sufficient to the task. But friend, when the believer looks at Christ, they have a captain who is the captain of their salvation, who is even more able, proven himself moreover, to be entirely sufficient to secure for the people of God peace with God. See, friend, there should be full confidence in our Christ, none in ourselves, but full confidence that our Christ can conduct even ourselves to the Lord. As we close, just a thought or two, friend. We need to ask ourselves, as we look at Jonah, as we face distress, what is our focus? Do we focus on our merit? Are we a people like those we read from the prophecy of Isaiah, who seek to commend to God our righteousness in hopes that his hand will be removed because we've merited something with him? Or maybe it's our focus on our hopelessness, that these things are simply too high and too heavy for us and there is no possible way of deliverance. Our friend is our focus upon Christ, the greater temple, who secures peace with God. You see, friend, how we answer that question is really what defines the difference between those who are afflicted and outside of Christ and those who are afflicted and in him. But for those, friend, who are in Christ, this text shows us powerfully the very kind of truth that you have in 1 Peter 1.5. Who are believers? They are those who are kept by the power of God through faith. Kept by the power of God through faith. Note how the Apostle describes that. It is not merely that we are kept. It is not merely that we are kept by God. But what is the means that God employs to keep us to himself? It is through faith. Friends, see Jonah's affliction. Conscience cried, you are the man. The waves and the sea screamed God was angry. He was brought to a point where he himself and every other man would think he was in a hopeless condition. What keeps that kind of faith alive? Friend, it can only be the power of God. It can only be the power of God keeping a man through faith. And so, beloved, those who are in Christ, as they are under affliction, you're to marvel not that they have strength in themselves. But you are to marvel... That the Lord God is keeping that flame that he ignited by omnipotent power. Lastly and finally, friend, this is an exhortation still to trust Christ. That is the clarion call of this text, isn't it? To trust Christ. Here we have an errant and afflicted prophet. And yet he casts himself upon the goodness, upon the mercy of God. As he looks to Christ embodied in the temple. And friend, as we do so, we'll find here that even under affliction we have cause to rejoice. The captain of our salvation has secured our peace with God. Even if sense 
the world and every other difficulty says otherwise. We have cause to rejoice as we remember God even under affliction, as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.